Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 290 being recorded on Thursday, April 7th, 2022. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, uh, tonight we are excited to talk about Shop Talk. Jason, you went for the show. I was not able to make it this year, unfortunately. Um, but you went and you are going to report on all the happenings and I am excited to hear how it went. I know. I feel like listeners should know that, um, your April fool's joke is you told me you were there and I kept waiting like at the Starbucks to meet you and you never showed. <laughs> not true. Not true. I was a good co-host and I let you know with plenty of time I wouldn't be able to make it. I, I am teasing. Uh, but I do think shop talk, uh, overlapped April fool's this year. Yeah, was there a lot of shenanigans? There there was not any there was some usual trade show shenanigans, but I'm not sure I would say there was any April Fools related shenanigans. But it was a good before show. We, you missed a good one. Before we dive in, what was the Starbucks situation? Uh so the Starbucks situation, I would give it uh, a B plus. Hmm. So it's uh for peop for longtime trade show followers, Shop Talk started out at the Aria as a small show. And then it outgrew the Aria and they moved to the Venetian, um, which was nice because the Venetian does have on-prem Starbucks. But the Venetian is uh, kind of very big and they did it there for a number of years. And then they, um, right before the pandemic, they announced they were moving it to Mandalay Bay. Um, and so this was the first one in Mandalay Bay. And uh, Mandalay Bay is good because it has... Two Starbucks, one uh, in the casino area and one on the way to the convention center. So, so ordinarily, I would give that an A plus. But they, uh, one of the Starbucks is still closed from the pandemic; it hasn't reopened. And the one on the way to the convention center normally takes mobile orders, which is awesome. But for the convention, they turned off, they turned off mobile orders every day of the convention. Oh, I hate it when they do that. I stayed very well caffeinated. And in my new world, where I drink iced coffee uh, from Starbucks branded iced coffee from the grocery store, I got to augment my stops at the Starbucks by having a couple jugs of Starbucks iced coffee in my room as well. So no one should be worried about me. Or maybe they should be saying you're very worried about me. strapped to your head like a, one of those beer hats. Exactly. And I showed up at a couple morning meetings with like two Starbucks. And it's always this great debate like, should I go hide in a closet somewhere and finish one so that the people in this meeting won't know that I was double fisting it? Or should I just embrace my my problem? And I, I embraced it. Everyone listens to the podcast and they know. Yeah. It's a well-known thing. Yeah. No one judges you for your Starbucks. Oh, uh, uh, the several clients we have at competitive coffee establishments definitely judge me. <laughs> <laughs> We love all coffee. We're, we're we do. We do. It is all good. Yeah. But the Nicole, what were the so that's the Starbucks. What about the uh, this whole thing called retail and e-commerce? Yeah. Right? So before we jump into all the the topics and going on, it's uh, I would just say like I think there 
I don't know if it was the official or the unofficial theme, but they called it Retail's Reunion, and I feel like it was pretty apt. Um, this is the first big show that, to me, felt like it did before the pandemic. Um, they had 10,000 attendees, which, if it's off from, from 2019, it's only slightly. Like, maybe they had 12,000 attendees in 2019. So... 10 felt like a big show. They had like 650 exhibitors. Um, it it felt pretty normal, which uh, was awesome. And one of the best things about Shop Talk normally is the networking and catching up with friends. And I feel like that was in full effect and extra fulfilling this year because, you know, I just got to see a bunch of people that I enjoy spending time with that I hadn't gotten to see in a couple of years. Very cool. Yeah. So it's kind of a, I like this post COVID lifestyle where it just feels like nothing happened. It, it, uh, it's a, it's a joy. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the biggest Debbie Danner for me is everyone I was excited to see was like mostly just asking me about you. <laughs> okay. All right. Sure. I'm sure how it went. <laughs> um, cool. what, no, um, I guess the other did, thing uh, I'm going to throw uh, out because Maybe I'll I'll throw a contrary position at the end, but I would say the overall mood at the show was also interesting to me. It felt very optimistic, like people were upbeat, people were kind of like enthusiastic about the year ahead, and uh, I, you know, I don't know, it, it was a it was a good vibe. Yeah, so I was tracking a lot of the social media, and it was interesting. Along this, so you had shop talk, which was like you know, it was like one one track, if you will, and all the positive things there. But at the same time, there was like some some chaos in e-commerce land where we had the single click checkout thing called Fast kind of falling apart. We had um, a lot of the rapid delivery companies. GoPuff is not one of them, but you, you know them better than I do. Gorilla and like three or four of them kind of imploded kind of right during Shop Talk. So there was kind of – I envisioned you guys like, yeah, this 15-minute delivery is the future while, while right outside the conference center it was kind of falling apart. There, there was some version of that. There was, uh, you know, Uber, Instacart, and DoorDash all talking about instant delivery while a lot of the the tenuous um, uh, VC funded ones were were uh, announcing their their uh, shutdowns. Uh, and for sure, there there was. I mentioned six hundred and fifty exhibitors. I I think about six hundred and twenty of them were payment providers. Um, or buy now, pay later <laughs> services. And what, like, if you walked around the show, you'd think that was the biggest thing ever. And, and yeah, per your point, like, you know, one fast runner, uh, fast, uh, as a payment provider, um, was kind of, um, spinning down and laying everyone off while this, while the show was going on. So not a lot of talk about that at the show. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm excited to hear your take on things. Let's, let's jump in. Awesome. So I kind of am dividing tonight's talk into two sections. Um, the main keynotes and kind of what my highlights were from those keynotes and then some of the, the main trends that I, I sort of picked up on from the show. So maybe we'll start with the keynotes um, and all the big media companies, you know, had a keynote. So so Meta was there, um, not with maybe the most senior Meta person like the, like Shop Talk tends to get big names for the keynotes. And the the meta was like a track keynote from uh, Benji Shalimar, who's like the VP of commerce, which, you know, big role at meta, but it wasn't like they had um, Sheryl Sandberg or someone. Um, they had uh, Alan Thegan from Google, who's like the president of uh, 
uh, America's partnerships. Um, and, uh, they, uh, he talked about Google and YouTube, um, and, you know, from those platforms, uh, Meta was like super bullish on social commerce as you would expect, but they, they were highlighting that like, Hey, the biggest growth area at Facebook in the short term is commerce. And he specifically called out stuff you talked about all the time that like, there's a huge amount of untapped buying intent in Facebook groups um, and uh, Facebook marketplace. And then uh, they're very bullish on the uh, live streaming via reels in uh, Instagram. This guy is a genius. Yeah. So he was, he was pitching that and you, you know, he didn't, again, people don't tend to break news at this show, um, but you got the impression that there was going to be some, some new product launches in the, in the near future that were commerce related. You definitely don't get the impression that, that uh, Meta is exclusively focusing on VR and moving away from commerce. Um, And then very similarly, Google was like, Hey, commerce is where it's at. Um, you know, they, they always have fun data to share. They, you know, they always share some trends about like, uh, search. And, you know, one of the interesting things is they were saying was, uh, that while there's a lot of evidence that people are returning to stores as the pandemic abates, um, that it's not at the expense of digital, it's in addition to digital. Um, so they were, uh, you know, they now have a lot of geolocation data in the Google ecosystem. And so they were talking about how like 54% of shoppers, like have been to five different shopping channels in the last two days. So in-store and online. Um, and they're, they're super bullish on YouTube as a commerce platform. So they're, they're both talking about um, a lot of new shoppable video formats and, and shoppable video ads. And uh, YouTube is a live streaming platform for influencers um, in you know, increasingly they have so many ad products on Google that it can be hard to figure out where to put your money and, and what to invest in. And so they have kind of one new new ad product they seem to be leaning into pretty heavily, which is called uh, Performance Max. And the idea is you just close your eyes and give Google its money, your money and Google figures out the best places to put it for you. Hmm. That sounds a little suspicious. Uh, I'm going to guess there's some machine learning in there that's just going to magically... Spend exactly. my money for me. It, it's got like a bunch of real time <laughs> optimization, and and I, you know, the yeah. the obviously like you should be cynical about those things and a little dubious. But I would say that a lot of these real time allocation and bidding systems, like you know, they they do tend to work pretty well. Like they do tend to outperform humans that are trying to make make uh you know decisions based on uh, on like historically wrong stuff and opinions. Yeah, the, we've been experimenting with some of the stuff at Spiffy, and you know, you used to do narrow match and broad match and experiment, and then as you as you do some of these under the hood, as we watch what they're doing, at least you have some visibility. It's not like a pure black box. Um, you know, it actually seems to be doing a pretty good job, and it takes a lot of the manual work out of what some of the best practices that you would do. So, so I uh, I like to poke fun, but I, I do think there's definitely a there there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I tend I tend to agree. And per your point, like you can put all the parameters you want and so you can run a test and see how it works and kind of increment into, you know, a bigger chunk of your budget. Um, but then we had like uh one real retailer on the main stage, uh, which was Kath McKay, who's the CEO of Sam's. Um, and she was pretty interesting. She was talking because you you don't normally think of club as being a 
a super digitally engaged category and, you know, digital being super important to club, like the, the most famous club retailer in the world is Costco, who I would argue is, is like quite famously a digital Luddite. Um, and Kath was talking a lot about how important Omnichannel was for Sam's and how like successful scan and go has been. And that like, um, that, that specific, particularly with younger shoppers, with millennials, um, that there's, that there's a preference to scan and go over, you know, traditional checkout and that the, the uh, scan and go customers shop more frequently and spend more. So they're, they're the, the best customers and that, uh, Sam's Club is even running ads promoting the scan and go functionality. And that was interesting to me because, uh, Walmart has kind of, tested and moved away from scan and go a couple times i feel like they're kind of leaning back into it at the moment but uh uh it seems like at sam's club like they're pretty convinced it's a no-brainer that it's a a net positive so so Mm -hmm. just walk out type technology um you know sort of more more proof that customers appreciate it interesting J Watt for the win. Exactly. Uh, and then the big three keynotes, as far as I was concerned, uh, that were most interesting were all the, the, um, I'll call them, uh, local commerce is what they want to be called now, or, or we might traditionally call them rapid commerce. But so it's the, um, CEO of Instacart, uh, Fiji Simo, uh, the president of DoorDash, uh, Chris Payne, and then the CEO of Uber, uh, Dara, uh, and I can never pronounce his last name, but, um, but so that was, those were three big gets as far as I was concerned. And those are, you know, three interesting companies in our industry right now. And, uh, you know, at least two of them, maybe all three of them, you don't necessarily first think of as commerce, um, or, or if you do, you think of them exclusively as kind of food commerce and they all were kind of talking about their general commerce play. So, so at Instacart, it's all about becoming the platform for local commerce, right? And so exactly kind of like uh, GSI pivoted from being a turnkey solution to being a, a platform that retailers used. Instacart is launching all these white label standalone services. So uh, carrot ads and um, uh, carrot fulfillment and uh, they, they're opening their own uh rapid commerce um, distribution centers that you can stage your products in and, and, you know, offer 15 minute or 30 minute delivery windows. Um, So that, you know, is kind of interesting. Instacart was like really trying to sell their, their stuff as services and in white labeled services and not just for food. So across all of commerce, uh, the same with DoorDash, DoorDash seemed to be talking about, Hey, we're, uh, we're all general merchandise. Um, we're, uh, you know, doubling down on uh, using, on fulfilling orders from stores, helping uh, stores do their, uh, use us as their own last mile service, um, and even helping uh, create inventory locations uh, for, for retailers that are closer to consumers. And uh, uh, Chris Payne talked a lot about these uh, delivery promises. And it was interesting. He was like, you know, we can all do 15 minute delivery, but there definitely is not a path to doing 15 minute profitably. And there's a lot of operational challenges. And he was kind of arguing that he felt like 30 minutes was the sweet spot that, that, 
like he he thought it was totally viable to offer a an appealing assortment of items for 30 minute deliver and ma- delivery in major metro areas and that that was going to be the focus of DoorDash. And then uh Uber same thing like you know right now Uber Eats makes as much or more than than the Uber rides. Um, and if you've been watching TV, you may have seen they have a national uh, ad campaign right now, which is pretty funny, um, called Uber Not Eats. And it's, you know, promoting all the non-edible stuff that you can get delivered from from uh, from Uber. And and uh, that like they they wanted to their kind of phrase for themselves was we want to be the local business operating system. So all the stuff uh, that a business needs to do kind of local last mile. Mm-hmm. Does that Great. get you all fired uh, up? Chris or... Payne was at a. Uh, it does. Chris Payne was at eBay. I know him from there. Oh wow! Okay. He always is. Uh, he was at like MSN and then eBay. He's been all over the place. He's a. He's kind of a. He started. I think he was a CTO for a while, but I think he's now more operational. Okay. Um. Yeah. I mean, he was good, and uh, you know, it's interesting to hear from all of them. I do think all of these like startups that are, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I think they're at a significant infrastructure disadvantage when, when kind of Uber, DoorDash and Instacart are all leaning into your space. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, hard to compete with them on one side and Amazon on the other. It's a bit of a crunch. Yeah. And it kind of my big takeaway from the, these, these keynotes in aggregate is, the swim lanes are off. Like each of these companies might've been born in a slightly different category of the gig economy, if you will. And they, you know, they each had kind of their home market and they all have decided that the growth opportunity is to expand into each other's market. So I think these three companies feel increasingly like direct competitors to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of my keynotes. Uh, and then, um, and I did not get to attend every single keynote. It was a pretty busy show and I was over-programmed. Um, but so then I did attend as many other sessions as I could and uh, hear kind of the big themes from my perspective. And you tell me if any of these resonate with you. Um, there were a lot of sessions about buy now, pay later. Um, and uh, like it was very optimistically covered in these sessions. And uh, McKinsey did a session where they were sharing some consumer research that, you know, more than 60 percent of consumers plan to use it. I thought all the the buzz around uh, BNPL was interesting because um, in my world, it almost feels like like that, that trend has already peaked and is starting to decline. Um, so, you know, part of a lot of retailers adopted BNPL. They they originally rolled it out on their website. Now they're rolling it out in point of sale. And a little known fact, it's more expensive for most retailers than a traditional credit card transaction. And the argument was that it would bring incremental customers and higher value customers. Um, and uh, like that hasn't been universally true amongst my clients that have tested it. Um, and the kind of uh, the world has changed a little since these services first rolled out. Now these services are all showing up on credit reports, which for a while they weren't. And so that was a reason a, a consumer might have chosen to use this versus a traditional credit card was if, you know, they already had a spotty credit report or didn't want to risk having a spotty credit report. 
And there's a lot of talk about like uh, default rates starting to really creep up on these things. So I, I kind of wonder how how durable they're going to be in the long term, especially if, if uh, you know, the economy keeps being challenging for a little while. Yeah. And one of the shining examples was Peloton, which has kind of hit the skids pretty hard. And you know, I think they were like half of a firm's volume or so, some some crazy number, you know, of. One of the biggest Meaning players. a lot of so Pelotons were bought with a, create an installment one. plan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got yeah. It. Like something like 80% of Pelotons had an affirm plan. And so, but also I think it was by far a firm's biggest merchant. Like, gotcha. you know, I've, I've read, you know, like a, a very material percentage of a firm's, what do you guys call it? Tr- transaction payment volume through those BNPLs. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever the metric is of the transaction volume flowing through, I think, I think Peloton was a big one and it's, they're they're in a world of hurt, so I wonder if that's creating some pressure on the industry too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, at the very least, I don't think the world uh, needs as many as we have right now. So I, I I would expect at the very least that we're going to see some consolidation in that space. And it, it you know, it, it it certainly has a place in the ecosystem. But there was a while when it was like, oh my god, the magic bullet to every commerce problem is buy now, pay later. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah. there is, um, was there any good consumer behavior though that you believed? Um, or was it all felt like the, the buy now, pay it later guys that just funded it, that consumers love it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think the McKinsey research was funded by, by uh, a particular company. Um, but, you know, it was this stated preference survey from customers. And you know how much I love uh, stated preference surveys from, from consumers. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, side note, uh, 99% of all alcoholics say they can stop drinking whenever they want, if you want to do a survey. Yep, absolutely. And everyone says they'll spend more money for something environmental friendly than they never do. Yeah, and uh, 100% of people are of, of above average intelligence. Yes, and handsome. Which doesn't, yeah, turn out to work out. Um, so... A another big talking point at the show was everybody's favorite word to hate is omnichannel. Like there were a ton of omnichannel sessions. There's a lot of interesting talk about um, people returning to stores. Like there was mixed messages about um, the rate of digital adoption declining, um, and I, I would say like the rate of acceleration is declining, but like. Digital is not decel is not shrinking in in any like absolute basis, um, but a lot more of these omni-channel amenities. And so this was like that was a lot of the Sam's Club talk was about that. Uh, Dave Gilba, uh, who's the this one of the co-founders of Warby Parker, he was talking a lot about omni-channel and the role of the stores um, in their business model. And uh, how they've kind of gone back to virtual try on like the I don't know if people know, but the original plan for Warby Parker was that you could use your phone to try glasses on. And uh, the the technology wasn't quite there when they launched the company and people didn't like it very much. So they ended up having to do all these try free five pair for free as an emergency stopgap. But now they feel like with the LiDAR and the latest iPhones uh, they they feel like the virtual try on experience is working better than the the try five pair model, and so they're they're starting to see a lot of uptick in that. But people still want to come into the store to buy the glasses. So, kind of talking about omni channel for the win. Hmm. Okay, uh, it's not harmonized. 
Yeah, no, only for for uh, um, what's his name? Steve Dennis. Steve Dennis. Yeah. Sorry, I, Mr. Bifurcation is how I think of him. But uh, <laughs> data is always a buzzword at this show, which, again, I like data as much as the next person, but I'm not sure, like, as a tactic that it's a standalone thing. Um, but a lot of people wanted to provide case studies about how they were, you know, leveraging data in new ways and particularly omni-channel data. So um, John Strain, who's the chief digital officer at Gap, was talking about, um, all the new initiatives that Gap is doing for first party data. Um, and he was arguing that like, you know, with the, uh, to do, doing personalization with first party data, uh, like they were saying, um, that they, uh, that they were able to acquire customers that were like 40% more likely to be new file customers as opposed to lapsed customers. And that they had a 30% higher order value than, than kind of their, their, pre-data driven customer acquisition tactics. Um the uh Steve Miller, who's the head of digital at Dick Sporting Goods, he was talking about uh a lot of uh sort of uh the data collection techniques that they were using and how they were getting way you know better outcomes out of personalization. Um they they had a kind of cool example I liked uh Dick Sporting Good launched an app called, um, uh, I think it's called Game Changer. Um, and what it is, is it's an app for your phone to keep score at a baseball game. And by keep score, you know what I mean? Like track all the stats. Mm-hmm. And people for a long time have brought a, a book and like book. Yeah. manually keep score at a game. So they created this app. They give it away for free. Um, but what it does is it now like get uh, let them get 27 million um uh like weekly baseball fans like in their ecosystem that they then get to market uh you know they have first party data on and get to market to so it's kind of like when um uh um under armor bought uh my fitness pal for example like kind of interesting plays where retailers are are like building or buying these these digital utilities that aren't necessarily directly related to commerce like just to get closer to customers that they can then market to yeah, that is clever. I like that. Yeah, little it, Trojan horse strategy. Exactly. And then uh, Julie Bornstein, who's the the founder of uh, the Yes, um, I think a past guest on the show. She was kind of talking about her first party data, and she was throwing out red meat to all the consultants that are selling personalization. Um, so here's going to be the money quote that you're going to see in every brochure you get for the next year. Um, our first party da- AI driven first party data um, experiences drove a 75% increase in annual spend, 100% uh, annual order frequency, and 125% better retention rate. And mm. so, sounds great. Sounds like they, they got some improvements that moved the needle for them. I'm excited for them. Uh, here's going to be the thing when you see all these personalization vendors that are now pitching that to you, like, personalization isn't like a binary thing. It's not like you don't have it and then you do have it. And these are the results you expect when you do have it, right? Like everybody's doing personalization to some extent and like how much improvement in results you're going to get is, is going to be directly related to how bad your experience was before and how far you improve it. Yeah. Yeah. Could it, so it could be just started with really yeah bad, bad numbers and then didn't kind of yeah, came out. Exactly. So I, I mean, I wouldn't be like, putting too much stock in these like benchmarks or case studies as like predictive in any way of 
of what an individual user will get. But like, of course, if you can get more customer data and use it to have more relevant experiences, that's going to be, you know, benefit you. Now, one thing I'm noticing is previous shop talks went with this whole panel format. This is sounding much more like individual speaker. Is that, is that kind of change of the format? Not necessarily. So they kind of have, they have a few formats. So they have, like, they have the keynotes, which is almost always a, an interview, a presenter and an interviewer. And that, that mm-hmm. was still true. Um, so then they have track keynotes and a track keynote is usually an individual speaker or an individual speaker followed by an interview. Um, and then they have these panel formats. And so, um, in some cases, I'm cherry picking what I thought was interesting from one speaker in a panel of three, but in a bunch of cases, these were track keynotes. Got it. Okay. Um, and we'll get to the very best track keynote in a minute, which, you know, was obviously mine. <laughs> um, no bias there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of talk about the best and most cost effective ways to acquire customers. Um, so, you know, there was a ton of sessions talking about live streaming and kind of the, um, the kind of, at this point, I'll call it the kind of predictable tripe that like, oh my gosh, live streaming is huge in China. It may or may not be coming to the U S but you should be testing it. Like, you know, uh, Google obviously had a big, uh, keynote talking primarily about live streaming. Um, a ton of, of, uh, practitioners were talking in particular about like their experience on TikTok and successful live streaming. HSN was obviously talking about their success. And then there were some uh, shop shops as a live streaming uh, platform that, uh, you know, gave an interesting case study. And then uh, I would say there's always a couple of vendors that like emerge. I don't know if they're necessarily the best or not, but like kind of win the show for um, share of voice. And so every time someone was talking about live commerce, uh, the vendor that they were talking about partnering with was Firework, which is a enabler of live streaming um, commerce and so it felt to me like they they uh did a good job showing up in all these conversations okay are you bullish on live streaming i am but it's because you have trained me that it's so big in china and then you know it's one of those things a lot of this stuff in china we thought would be good kind of come across has not like chat commerce and weibo and all that so but it's one where, you know, I see these influencers and I, I think it will catch on because we've got the Kardashians. And if they ever did a live stream or something like that, it would it'd be huge. We just need we need like that spark and kind of the unique American take on it, probably from a content perspective, not underlying technology. But but it all has to kind of come together. Yeah. Uh, side note, like we may need a, an updated deep dive on live streaming in China because it's actually it's evolving super rapidly. Like there was this interesting phenomenon at first where all the live streaming was happening on retail platforms. So it was like kind of influencers that got made famous by Alibaba and JD on their platforms. So think of it as people were consuming live streaming on walmart.com, not on TikTok. Um, and then the government kind of cracked down on some of these influencers who apparently weren't paying taxes. <laughs> um, and uh, and it kind of shifted the live streaming to the social platform. So like now Daoyun, which is TikTok in China, is like the destination for live streaming. So it's it's just been interesting. Um, 
But one flavor of live streaming I really like, uh, and I think a Coach was talking a lot about in their their track keynote at the show, is sales associates um, as in as micro influencers and doing live streaming either from the store or after hours, which is pretty cool. Hmm, okay, yeah, we'll have to get caught up on it. Yeah, so a related uh, trend that got a lot of buzz uh, at this show as another way of acquiring customers is micro influencers. That's another one that I'm kind of bullish on, and there were some good case studies there. Um, so uh, Jill Ramsey is the CEO of AKA Brands, uh, was talking about like micro influencers being their most successful new customer acquisition strategy. They're a bunch of apparel brands. Um uh, one that I hadn't thought of that I feel like I need to get updated on more. Uh, uh, Alyssa Walt is the chief business officer for Burton Snowboards. So, you know, the, all the snowboarding accessories. And she was talking about they were having huge success using um, NCA athletes as influencers. And, of course, if you're not following it closely, that used to be illegal for or not illegal, but like it was against the NCA term. So you lose your college eligibility of you made any money as a influencer or sponsor. Um, and now their uh, college athletes are all uh, uh, permissioned to, to uh, endorse products and make money. And so it's kind of opened this new, new channel. If you have a, a, a product that's appropriate to be uh, 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 advocated by, by college athletes. So that seemed interesting that they were a, a, a fast mover there. Um, and then I mentioned uh, Coach was definitely leaning into influencers and particularly using uh, uh, sales associates as influencers. Cool. I hadn't heard the NCAA thing um, yielding some some fruit. So that's interesting to hear. Yeah, I had seen some funny like local case studies where like the local car dealership hired some NCAA athletes. And as you could imagine, like some of them are awful and some of them are awesome. So just like some of the the like the quality of the the deliveries have been pretty funny and uneven. Um, <laughs> so another big talking point uh, that kind of it was not the topic of a lot of sessions, but it got mentioned in a lot of sessions, including mine, uh, was the emergence of retail media networks. And I would say that was something that came up a, a lot in hallway conversations more so than in like content on the stage. Um, but everybody and their brother, you know, now has a retail media network and, uh, that, you know, they're all doubling down. And one thing they're all doing is expanding beyond digital search. So, you know, more different ad platforms on their websites, but increasingly a lot of, um, media opportunities in stores. So you and I were talking about some of these offline, like, you know, you know, in-store displays and things like that. Um, and then also a bunch of these retail media networks are offering DSPs and letting you buy ads on Google or Facebook using first party targeting from the retailer. So, you know, you think about the depreciation of cookies and your ability to buy your own lookalike audience on Facebook. Um, you know, you, you can still, uh, pay Walmart to buy lookalike audiences on Facebook for you. And that can be pretty successful. Hmm. Um, so we already talked about the payment trends. Uh, another big trend that came up a lot, we kind of covered it in the the keynotes, was the the rapid commerce being a big thing. Um, and then what I wanted to uh, put on your radar screen, um, 
One that came up an awful lot a few times in sessions and then a lot in the hallway is everyone is metaverse curious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I read one of the summaries was everyone's talking about metaverse, but no one thinks there'll actually be any commerce done there. So, so I don't, I don't know where, where people thinking there's actually going to be some commerce happening or they were just wondering yeah, I, what is so this? I don't, Why is that's Facebook a good question. Wins? I tried to ask probing questions and like the vast majority of people you talk to don't actually understand what they even mean. Like there's a lot of conflict, uh, conflation of terms, right? Like web three metaverse, um, blockchains, cryptocurrencies. And so it's, it's, you know, you're talking to someone about the metaverse and then they're telling you why they invested in Bitcoin and you go, well, like those are related, but they're not the same thing. Um, yeah. It's like Web3. Yeah. But so there were a couple of case studies from some gaming companies that were doing some in-game commerce. Um, again, McKinsey like kind of had some consumer, like part of their presentation had all these like evolving consumer trends. And they, again, there's a stated preference. So take it with a huge grain of salt. Um, but they asked customers how many hours a day they expected to spend in the metaverse five years from now. And the average answer was four hours a day. And for, for, uh, Gen Z's, the average hour answer was nine hours a day. (laughs) So, you know, every, pretty much every waking hour or sleeping hour will be in the metaverse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, um, I'll, I'll tell you about my evolving opinion in the metaverse in a minute, but, um, uh, you know, a really interesting question is what it like is like, are we in the metaverse right now? Like, like is a zoom call in the metaverse is like Facebook messenger chat, the metaverse, like, you know, the, yeah, uh, there's a lot of gray area in definitions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so if you can't like, if, if all my time on Twitter is in the metaverse, then I might be close to that average now. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that counts. Um, and so I'll uh, I will highlight like I do think uh, we have a, a a metaverse commerce deep dive in in our near future. Um, everybody wants to learn about it and understand it. Like I've been doing some kind of metaverse one hundred and one commerce conversations with a bunch of clients. Um, and like. At the very least, if you're going to be an early mover and do some piloting, like there are a bunch of easy to make tragic mistakes to make early on that you should you should be aware of. And so it's just, you know, it might be an interesting topic for us to do a deep dive on. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put it on the list. Yeah. And I got um, uh, corralled by uh, everybody's favorite venture capitalist, Andreessen Horowitz, and uh, they're wildly bullish on the metaverse. <laughs> Which uh, which one of the folks do you remember? Uh, so they they now have like a whole team, um, dedicate like uh, the uh, and you you probably know them uh better than I do, but um, you know they're trying to have this spin of uh providing all these services to entrepreneurs, so they have like a lot of kind of shared re uh, sources, and so um, you know the pitch to me is like. Uh, you know, man, if you have any client projects, like we can play matchmaker and help introduce you to the right, you know, companies in our portfolio and stuff like that. So the, these were not like investment partners. These were all operating partners that were trying to like accelerate business for their portfolio companies that were pitching me. 
Hmm. I knew they had crypto focus. I didn't know they had a team thinking about the metaverse. That's interesting. They they do have a crypto focus, and I'm saying metaverse, but I'll tell you what they really have. They're 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 in addition to their crypto focus, they have a Web three focus. Okay. They're um, kind of lumping it all together. Yeah, which there, there's an important distinction between Metaverse and Web3, which would be fun to talk about if we do a deep dive. Yeah. All right. Good teaser. Awesome. Uh, a lot of talk. I, I mentioned this already, but there was a lot of talk about the return of stores, which is funny because you know I, I wasn't aware stores went away. Um but maybe the buzz of the stores went away and, you know, now like stores are comping pretty well against their soft pandemic numbers and digital is comping not as well against their mega pandemic numbers. And so there's a way in which you look at it and go, oh, man, you know, store growth is unusually high and, and digital growth is unusually low. Um, I think that's kind of a misunderstanding of the data a little bit in in a lot of cases. But that was a a big hallway conversation. And then. The conversation that I didn't hear that really surprised me, I mentioned the mood was really kind of rosy. Um, I have to be honest, all my one-on-ones with clients leading up to the show have not been rosy. Like there's mm-hmm. a, an awful lot of concern amongst uh, the folks I work with about uh, what, what everybody's calling the macros. And, you know, by that they mean like inflation, persistent supply chain problems, um, uh, you know, consistent, uh, persistent, like economic instability, like housing supplies and cost of living going up, like all these, these kind of doom and gloom financial measures. And then you throw, you know, gas prices and war in Europe on top of all that. And I'm talking to a bunch of people that are like really worried about the financial health and spending ability of their customer base. And there was none of that at this show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the consumer confidence numbers, I've taken a precipitous fall, which I always use as kind of my barometer. And I'm, a, I am also worried about the macros. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'll, you know, I get these wrong all the time, but, uh, there was a time early in the pandemic when, when, uh, you know, my narrative was like the pandemic's probably going to cause a, a, a recession and it's probably going to end with a, a period of like crazy accelerated spending similar to the roaring twenties. And the irony is, the opposite kind of happened. Like the pandemic, like drove a, a, a two year period of, of crazy spending and it feels like it's now ending in a recession. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of backwards from what we all thought. Yeah. I hope that's not how it all plays out, but uh, yeah. But it's not so showing the, up in the numbers, like, you know, the numbers that you talk about, the retail numbers, the, but, but so it's either not happening or it's early indications and we haven't seen it yet. That's, that's kind of the big concern. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I will tell you, like, if um, and it's going to come up here pretty soon, uh, I think another week. Uh, last March was a mega month for retail. And so the comps this March are comping against a really hard number. And, you know, a lot of people feel that, like, the macros, like, really started to show up in the consumer numbers this March. And so if... Like there's a chance that like the comps are going to be really ugly this March. It's going to be a hmm. interesting month to watch. All right, we'll keep an eye out. Yeah, I did save the last uh, best session, best session for last. 
Um, I did a track keynote talking about um, achieving digital profitability, right? And I, so I was the one doom and gloom session. I'm like, hey, there is a bunch of macro concern over uh, out there. Like, obviously, there was a bunch of extra digital um, uh, activity. And now the challenge we all have to face is we've got to figure out how to bring more profit to our digital business. And so I did a whole track keynote talking about, um, uh, opportunities to improve the profitability. And then I had a guest, um, Jerome Griffith, who's the CEO of Lanzan. And, uh, like I did a, like a 15 minute presentation. And then we did like a 20 minute fireside chat talking about the best strategies, uh, to make money in this climate. So I tried to what, channel what my inner Scott the, as much as possible because you always are like some of those strategies. Um, I mean, it's it's block and tackling stuff. We kind of, you know, talked about, you know, typical framework of reducing cost, getting more customers, you know, uh, generating more revenue from each customer. And then we kind of hit on our, our favorite uh, tactics within each of those three buckets. Uh, Jerome, like, you know, by far feels that the the easiest best place to start is on the cost controls, right? And he's in the apparel space. Um, <clears throat> historically, the apparel space does a horrible job of demand forecasting. So they make the wrong stuff and they make too much stuff. Um, and that really hurts costs and, you know, just, just fundamental costs of goods and, and having good rigor around controlling manufacturing costs is his kind of um, home base. But like the part of his... Uh, feedback that was super interesting to me is Lanzin was a direct-to-consumer company. So they were a company that was born as a catalog that sold 100% direct-to-consumer. They got acquired by Sears. So then they were exclusively available on the Lanzin catalog and in Sears stores. And they were acquired by Sears, like right as Sears was starting to get distressed and turning into a fast eddy discounter. And so suddenly Lanzin, which hadn't done any discounting, was heavily discounted. And then they got spun off from Sears um, and, you know, tried to recover their non-discount price point. And uh, they expanded into a bunch of other channels. So today uh, you can buy lands in direct from their website, which is still about 50% of their sales. But they sell wholesale through Macy's and Kohl's, um, which, you know, are discount channels. And then they they also sell uh, 1P on Amazon. And so... It was interesting. He talked about wholesale and um, uh, marketplaces being uh, uh, a very important and vibrant customer acquisition strategy for a direct-to-consumer company. And so he felt like like the customers that he was meeting at Kohl's were incremental to the customers he met directly and that like partnering with Kohl's and Macy's was a way more cost-effective way to acquire customers than Facebook ads. Interesting. And then I like the marketplace take. That's a that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, he was kind of like, you got to be where the customer is, um, control your costs. Uh, and then, you know, there are things like if you are direct to consumer, like you should launch a retail media network and try to supplement your 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 revenue um, with those kinds of tools. Um, and, you know, I, I did some stuff just on basic, block and tackling and on mobile experiences that we all still get wrong and improving mobile conversion and stuff like that. Cool. The, um, was there a standing ovation at the end of the session? There was, there was, because I said, uh, I was going to shut up now and that, that generated a incredible standing ovation. (laughs) 
Did you do the whole spiel of, if you like this, I've got 290 hours out there on the internet for you? I did, but it's 300 hours because (laughs) even though we only have 290 shows, the average one is longer than an hour. (laughs) Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Some guy, uh, uh, we interviewed someone. He's like, I've listened to all your podcasts. I was like, I'm not really sure you have. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Although I will tell you. I ran into a ton of people, uh, so many nice comments. I'm so grateful. Like, the thing I feel bad about when you miss a show is just so many random people, like, recognize our our name on my badge. And I had a Jason and Scott show badge. Um, <laughs> and, like, we're honest listeners and had great feedback. And it was just fun to talk to all these people. And, and uh, it's nice to hear that people appreciate what we do. And uh, if you don't know, the most common comment i get about the show is that oh yeah i listen at 1.25 speed or 1.5 speed while i'm at on my exercise bike Mm. and i and i i want to say for the first time ever i met a guy who's a regular listener to the show that said he listened at 2x and that i found i sounded kind of sleepy and tired in real life (laughs) (laughs) this is when you're holding two coffees yeah exactly Did you have the thing where you're speaking and someone recognizes your voice and they're looking around like, wait, I, I've heard that voice before. Oh, that yeah. It's, uh, it's Starbucks every single time because, but I mean, a, I spend a lot of time standing in a Starbucks line and I spend a lot of time talking. So a lot of people have the chance to hear my voice and go, wait a minute, you sound familiar. Yeah. Did anyone make fun of your title? That's my favorite part. Uh, so, Yes. But yes. like, in fairness, they're mostly people that are friends of yours or mine that just like aren't okay. Team Scott. Okay. They're just, just carrying on the chief digital retail analytics uh, customer journey officer. Time exactly. Nice. Cool. Did you guys, did your company have a big shindig? Was it a good show for you guys? Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was also fun cause I, I had a fair amount of coworkers there and it was fun to spend time with them. And we had a team dinner that was awesome. Um, the most publicist agencies wouldn't necessarily exhibit, but we, we own, um, uh, a company that helps implement a lot of retail media networks called Citrus Ad. And so they had a booth there. So I, it was fun to hang out with them a little bit, um, their, their founder, by the way, we, we, we might have, I try not to put Pubis's people on our show very often, but uh, we might have to have him on because uh, he's a, a, a two-time very successful entrepreneur. He tricked us into buying his, his most recent company. Um, but he also is a former uh, professional Australian rules football player, like legit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's that uh, weird football that they have. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of fatter and stubbier than our football. Yeah. What version of football <laughs> is not weird? But okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, yeah. And we should uh, talk about if Pupilsis needs to acquire any car washes. For you You and I can have that one offline. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, like, as you can imagine, that's that's most of the cycles that, that I spend at Pupilsis is, is pitching on us leaning into the car wash space. <laughs> Cool. Um, did you get a chance to walk through the booths and the the show floor and see any? Was that well trafficked? Any any kind of yeah, interesting it's always, new things? It's always hard to tell. I do think shop. Talk, one of the things Shop Talk does well is two things. Um, they try to have some events in the floor. Um. So so you know like the lunches and stuff. You kind of have to walk through the trade show to get to the lunches. So they try to artificially create some traffic. Um, but one thing I really appreciate about shop talk is 
they have downtime in the agenda when there's no track or keynote content. Like they have like two hours a day. Um, and part of the reason is they have this, this, uh, function called these like meetups, like a retailer can attend shop up shop talk for free if they agree to take like five meetings with vendors and then these vendors pay for these meetings. And so they have to have a, a window to do those meetings in. And so I appreciate that it, it creates a, a more natural opportunity for people to walk the show and discover vendors without, um, feeling like you're missing something. Very cool. How many uh, retailers did you meet with? Uh, yeah, so I do, do, do always do try that? to walk the show, that? and I do, I do try to stop and talk to some booths. Um, I got to be honest, there's a weird dynamic, Scott, and I feel like you would appreciate this, uh, but walking the floor makes me feel old because I walk the floor and I here, – here's basically what goes on in my mind. I don't recognize the name of any of the vendors, and then I, I like read the sign for a second, and then I figure out that they're a vendor I know super well that's changed their name three times. And so it's like, I feel like the Wikipedia that's like remembering, oh yeah, you used to be this and now you're this and now you're that. And then I know, I go, oh, and I know these three people that work there right now, but uh, it is now the case that all the people I know that work at all these vendors are too old and senior to be in the booth. So I know <laughs> I, never, wow. I never run into any, any folks I know in the booth that's always the, the next generation. Yeah, they all get excited that you're a retailer and then you're a podcaster. And they're like, oh. Yeah, and that's my my uh, unfulfilling lame game I play with all of them is uh, like, you know, by and large, they're like, so what do you do? And I go, I mostly just talk about this stuff all the time. And, they're, and they like think I'm lying when in fact, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> the new about the 300 hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then in a couple of cases, it dawned well, cool. on them, wait a minute, you're the Jason and Scott show. And they like chase me down in the hallway and go, you, I listen to your podcast. Very and cool. Then we go into the whole sleepy tired thing. Um, anyway, but in the interest of bringing the average down, I feel like I've covered all the show. Do you feel like you caught up on everything you, you missed by not being there? I do. The one thing that I've heard chatter from the folks I talked to is this, continued pressure on Shopify. Um, you know, ever since they announced their last quarter's earnings Q4, um, their stock has been on a, a precipitous slide that they haven't seen since their IPO in like 2016, I think maybe 15. Um, was that, did that come up at all or, or no? It didn't come up a lot. And I'm trying to remember, like I actually don't, I don't think they had a booth at the show, which is interesting. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I kind of don't think they had had a, a big booth. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously they're totally lumped into this whole category of companies that did amazing at the beginning of the pandemic. And then like, you know, seemed like they acted like they would continue to to grow at that pace and obviously couldn't. And then, you know, their their stock got punished for it. Yeah. Yeah, and there's been a lot of um, Wall Street notes out saying, you know, that I think what freaked everyone out is the fact they're going to invest in infrastructure, meaning warehouses. And there's been a lot of Wall Street folks trying to say, it's not that bad. It's only a billion dollars. But I remain skeptical that, that that's going to be enough. And then, yeah, so we should uh, – I was just wondering if that was talked yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, if not, anything, I, I would say there are a lot more fulfillment companies that would be competing with uh, – Shopify fulfillment network um, and a lot more 
like I'll tell you where Shopify has a ton of competition at this show are like um POS systems, which is actually a, a meaningful part of Shopify's offering now. And, you know, like kind of um uh solutions as a service besides the e-commerce site, the payment systems and all of these things that you know Shopify does. And I will say it's kind of funny. I I still think like a lot of people try to describe themselves as the Shopify of X, which like doesn't sound as good as it did a couple of years ago. And you still hear people trying to say like, we're the Warby Parker of X. And I'm like, have you looked at Warby Parker's numbers? lately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about, um, how about some of our friends from the headless commerce industry? Was there a lot of, a lot of buzz there with the. Yeah. The yeah. So those platforms were like, there in full strength. Um, uh, Fossil and Fabric uh, had a big presence there. You'll remember they they raised some good money right before the show. Um, uh, we we had uh, Kelly on from uh, uh, Commerce Tools, uh, uh, you know, a number of episodes ago, and he talked about the Mock Alliance, and that Mock Alliance mm -hmm. has really gained a lot of traction. Like I'm seeing a lot more and more vendors emerging that are now members of the Mock Alliance. So it seems like, uh, you know, that that's not just a marketing thing. That's kind of like a legitimate um trade organization for all these headless providers interesting was there like common badging throughout or something like that uh like yeah there's a mock alliance logo that was on a bunch of booths i i they may have had events i wasn't able to like attend any of their their social events but uh yeah it seems like it's getting traction i don't know if this is a perfect show for them like i there was an era when like everybody needed a platform and you'd go to a show to meet vendors and find out about platforms. Like I, I kind of think the average attendee here has a platform today. And so, you know, maybe there's some that are thinking about switching. Um, but I, I have a feeling that those booths have gone a little bit more from customer acquisition to customer relationship management and retention at these shows. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, cool. Well, we appreciate you uh, going out and braving the in wild environs of the Las Vegas hotel circuit and the, the Starbucks to to report back to us. Uh, it was my pleasure. And um, if she's listening, uh, definitely congratulations to Christina Gufsison and the the whole team at Shop Talk. I I, I do think they they put on a a good show, and it's 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 like I think it's definitely set itself up as the preeminent kind of digital commerce show in our industry now. Yeah, and listeners, if you appreciated this recap, it's a great time to to pause and then go and leave us one of those wonderful and amazing five-star reviews that we appreciate so much. Yeah, and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 